day and welcome to the SoftBank Overview Conference Call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to turn the conference over to Mr. Ethan Lacey. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ethan Lacey. I do TMT Specialty Sales for New Street. And I want to thank everyone uh, for joining us today, obviously, uh, in what have been relatively uh, trying times and challenging markets. Hope everyone is uh, safe and well and your families as well. The purpose of the call today is to do a review of SoftBank. It's a call that New Street is uniquely positioned to host, given our thought leadership on SoftBank coverage and our global scope as a firm. Uh, we will be uh, focused in trying to get a better understanding of potential near-term outcomes for SoftBank, along with derivative implications for SoftBank group ownership position. To that end, I'm delighted to uh, have on the call today New Street Tech Infrastructure Analyst Pierre Ferrigu. U.S. Communications Analyst Jonathan Chaplin, we have New Street European Communications Analyst James Raster, our Asian Communications Analyst Chris Hoare, and our Asian Internet Analyst Jin Yoon. The format is going to be a brief introduction from Pierre, followed by an overview from each respective analyst and some brief Q&A uh, on the follow. As always, the more interactive, the better. There are no slides uh, with the call, but I would reference our deep dive note out on SoftBank Group today. Uh, as well as our recent work on T-Mobile, our DT uh, upgrade to buy, and our extensive work on Japanese telcos uh, and Asian internet, including, obviously, uh, Alibaba. If you have any questions on the call, please feel free to send uh, them through uh, to ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com. And with that, uh, I'm going to hand it over to Pierre. Pierre. Thank you, Ethan, and thank you, everybody, for making the time to join us uh, on this call today. I cover SoftBank here at New Street Research, and uh, let me introduce you call with some thoughts on the program the group announced last week. Uh, in the wake of uh, current market conditions and as a result of investor concerns uh, about the SoftBank group that built up over the years, the corporate discounts of the group widened to unprecedented levels at the end of March, above 70%. And this despite nearly 80% of the group's gross assets being into three very liquid assets, Alibaba, Sprint, and SoftBank Japan. So investor concerns that drove the sell-off uh, in the stock are fueled from multiple angles. There are concerns about very small but very high visibility investments uh, of SoftBank, uh, such as WeWork, OneWeb, and many others who have gone through very difficult times or are actually likely to face such difficult times in today's crisis. There are also concerns about the leverage of the group. With nearly $200 billion of consolidated debt, Southern may look at first sight heavily leveraged. Moody's and Standard & Poor's downgraded the debt of the group in recent weeks, adding to concerns. And then lastly, there are concerns about governance, disclosures, and the overall strategic direction of the group. Difficulties arising from multiple fronts cast a harsh, cold light on limitations in the governance model of SoftBank as a group and the Vision Fund more specifically. Our perspective is actually a bit more optimistic. Uh, with nearly 80% of the gross asset value in listed mature successful companies, we see SoftBank Group as a reasonable holding with just a bit more than 20% of gross asset value exposure into more uncertain private bets with a higher risk and higher return profile. Second, with only $60 billion of net debt at a group level, which is 23% of today's gross asset value, and over $20 billion in cash, which is more than twice as the debt maturities, debt and bound maturities of the group of the next two years, the group is actually in a very sound financial position with limited leverage and very good liquidity. 
The majority of the consolidated debt I just referred to are actually non-recourse debt at a group level and are mostly uh, sitting into on the balance sheet of Sprint and SoftBank Japan. And then third, the private assets that represent a bit more than 20% of the group gross asset value. In these assets, we see a majority that are already very healthy. We have in mind names like Arm, like Uber, Didi, Grab, Coupang, for which at this stage, I think the question is how well they could do into the future, much more than whether they will they are going to make it or not. There is a vast amount of assets that may never make it, of course, but this is the essence of venture investment, even if it's late-stage investment. On the back of this perspective, our recommendation to the group has been for some time to buy back aggressively its equity, but without increasing leverage beyond today's explicit limits, which is 25% net debt on gross asset value, and to improve at the same time disclosures for the vision fund, financial guidelines for the way the group is managed and steered strategically, and governance for both the group and the vision fund. Last week, SoftBank Group decided to take action with a very strong program aiming at monetizing $41 billion of its assets and use the proceeds to support a $22 billion buyback and deleverage the group. So the objective of our call today with my colleagues covering Sprint, T-Mobile, Deutsche Telekom, Alibaba, and SoftBank Japan is to look at how this monetization program can play out in the next 12 months and how it is affecting our coverage. So with that, I'll hand over to Jonathan, who covers Sprint and T-Mobile in the U.S. Thanks, Pierre. So I'm going to first just cover the restrictions on what SoftBank can do under the merger agreement, um, and I'll come back and chat about the implications for T-Mobile towards the end of the call. So based on the lockup and right of first refusal agreement contained in the proxy, SoftBank can sell shares to DT and vice versa whenever either of the companies want to. SoftBank can also pledge their stake as collateral for a loan for up to 50% of the share's value. SoftBank can sell shares to any other party or in the open market with DT's approval at any time. They can only sell shares without DT's approval as follows. After one, after one year, they can sell a portion of their stake equal to 5% of total shares outstanding. After two years, they can sell an additional 10% of shares outstanding. And if they didn't take advantage of the 5% in, one, in year one, um, uh, th- that would be included as well. So up to 15% of shares outstanding. After three years, they can sell anything in excess of what would be required to keep DT and SoftBank at 50% between them. And after four four years, they can do whatever they want. I would add that the sales in year one and two are also limited to keep SoftBank and DT at no less than 50% of shares outstanding between them. DT has a right of first refusal on all of SoftBank sales. And finally, the restrictions were written to include forward sales and other derivative transactions. We think SoftBank would need DT's approval really for any monetization of the stake aside from collateralizing a loan um, and the, the, the sales just mentioned above. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to James to talk through how DT might be thinking about um, a, a, a transaction. Great. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. And so now we've got the framework for what might be possible from the merger agreement. Let's try to examine 
what DT might actually want to do. Um, so, I mean, firstly, given that, I mean, we see Teamus worth over $110 today and being worth significantly more than that in three to five years' time, and I think DT share a similar view, uh, we'd see any purchase of Teamus shares here in the $80 range as a great deal for DT's some of the parts. So, we'd be supportive of DT trying to increase its stake in T-Mobile at this time. Now, on that basis, if Deutsche Telekom can buy out those TMUS shares from SoftBank for every 10% uh, of TMUS that it can buy, um, it would add about 0.7 euros per share to our longer-term fair value for DT. And at this stage, we actually don't see any better deployment of excess capital uh, for Deutsche Telekom. However, the key constraint for them right now is their leverage. Um, and this does seem to be an issue for a number of Deutsche Telekom investors right now. But we believe the scale of DT's reported leverage uh, is actually being overstated at the moment. Uh, so DT has an official target for consolidated net debt to EBITDA to be between 2.25 and 2.75 times. Um, and in our base case, we see DT's leverage peaking at three times in 2021 uh, before trending back to the lower end of the range, 2.4 times in 2025 once the initial integration costs at T-Mobile are over and the cash generation begins to kick in. However, we think the DT headline leverage overstates their real leverage position for three key reasons. Firstly, leverage in T-Mobile USA is high in the next two to three years, and DT consolidates 100% of it, yet their economic ownership is only 43%. Secondly, Deutsche Telekom's intercompany lending into T-Mobile USA is coming down very quickly. It starts at $14 billion today. Uh, it will drop to $6 billion post-merger closing and then to only $2.5 billion two years from now. And thirdly, IFRS 16, which includes both operating and spectrum leases, is not flattering to DT given the already high level of those leases within T-Mobile USA and then the new operating and spectrum leases that will be consolidated with Sprint. So actually looking at it, excluding IFRS 16 takes about half a turn off the leverage. And then more importantly, if we look at the non-US balance sheet, we actually see that being levered only around two times. And we think that should remain stable with no further M&A. So that looks a lot more attractive, and we see that as a better metric for DT's real underlying leverage today. Now, what I should say, given all the numbers kind of just mentioned here, would, would draw everyone's attention to the DT upgrade note we did to buy from Monday. That runs through these numbers in more detail, and that's fully available to everyone on our website. So just looking at it specifically then how this um, you know, feeds through to SoftBank, if DT were to buy a 7% stake in T-Mobile from SoftBank, that would take them to 50%. It would only add about 0.1 to 0.2 turns of leverage. And we think that the market should like that as it then secures 
Timus control for DT even beyond the four-year lockup period. That would take non-U.S. leverage to about 2.7 times. We still see that as perfectly reasonable below some of the other European telco peers, and especially given the stability of the German market at the moment. If they were, though, to buy the whole SoftBank stake, that would take the headline leverage as far as 3.4 turns and also get pushed out by several years. Now, that outcome, our view is the market would get more worried about that near term. So I think that option might be a stretch too far for DT right now, even if we do think it's value accretive and DT should be able to delever rapidly once the T-Mobile integration costs are over. So kind of to sum up, given DT does have the right of first refusal at the moment, we don't think they'd necessarily try to buy more than the 7% at this stage. That would uh, raise about $7 billion for SoftBank. Um, We think DT would then be happy to wait and buy more if and when SoftBank starts to sell in different tranches um, and DT can gauge the market's mood on leverage um, at each of those stages. And with that, I will uh, hand the call over. Thank you, James. And it's uh, Pierre um, coming back to the call as well. So just to wrap up on uh, how we think the $41 billion can be raised in um, the market uh, based on these considerations. So what we would expect first is uh, that Deutsche Telekom and Southern come to an agreement by which DT would first, uh, for uh, about $6 billion, secure control in the new co um, by acquiring a sliver, uh, a slice of the stake of um, SoftBank, and would in return give SoftBank Group more flexibility on the monetization of the remainder of its stake in Sprint. So SoftBank Group could be uh, able to monetize um, in excess of 50% of the remaining stake, the vast majority of it, with a collard asset-backed uh, loan. That way, SoftBank would get the cash today and the stake would be protected uh, from the perspective of Deutsche Telekom for a future increase in the capital of, um, of T-Mobile. On a side note, we also think Deutsche Telekom could be part of this structured collard asset-backed uh, asset loan uh, as DT could participate, uh, buying an option to grow, uh, to increase its stake in T-Mobile beyond 2024 an attractive price uh, agreed to today. In this scenario, SoftBank could monetize uh, $20 billion, if not a bit more, out of its stake in Sprint. In addition to that, SoftBank could lower its stake in SoftBank Japan, also maintaining uh, a controlling stake uh, in, the, in the domestic subsidiary. Chris will explain why we think uh, it's uh, nearly a necessity. So that would be $10 billion monetized out of SoftBank Japan, or actually less. And then lastly, we expect SoftBank to monetize uh, a small portion of its stake in Alibaba, 12 to $15 billion. That would represent only 10% of the current stake. In the same way, um, SoftBank did it in 2016 when uh, the group financed its acquisition of ARM. That monetization would go through uh, a layered and structured transaction in which part of the, um, uh, of the shares would probably be sold to Alibaba themselves, to the partners and founders of Alibaba, 
and then through a structured vehicle uh, and obviously not hitting directly um, directly the market. Uh, and with that, I'll turn over to Chris, who will give a more detailed perspective on uh, how this plays out for SoftBank Japan. Yeah, thanks, Pierre. So thinking about implications from an SDKK perspective, I think the key issue is how, how much overhang risk there is. You know, it's pretty clear that Massa sees more upside in the other assets within the SBG group than KK. Uh, however, as Pierre mentioned, we think any sale is highly unlikely to be more than 16% of KK because that would take SBG's stake below 50%. Uh, and I'll explain why in a minute. But at the current price, that would raise around $9 to $10 billion, as Pierre mentioned. So we think going below 50% is highly unlikely for several reasons. Firstly, SBKK has been sold largely to retail investors in Japan as being part of the SBG group. We think it would be very difficult to sell in a second tranche down below 50% uh, as Going below 50% essentially takes it outside of the uh, of the SB group, takes away the mass of magic that has been integral to the retail investor story. There's also a, uh, a further issue, which is that prior to the IPO, SBKK paid SBG 350 billion yen for perpetual use of the SoftBank brand. However, according to the prospectus and company's investor relations team, if, if SBG sells down below 50%, then that opens up a discussion between KK and SBG around compensation from SBG to SBKK. SBKK previously used to pay SBG 40 billion yen a year for use of the brand. It's been two years. That would lead to a potential payment of around 250 billion yen from SBG to SBKK. Obviously, uh, to a large extent, offsetting the benefit of selling more SBKK shares. And we also think that SBG's own financing structure requires them to receive the SBKK dividend and consolidate the cash flows. Uh, and, and what that means is that selling down below 50% would imply rising risk at SBG. And, uh, and now, given that the whole point around the NAV discount is to do with perceived risk, that's really the opposite of what SBG is trying to achieve. So to conclude, we think the chance of SBG going to minority position is unlikely, and that means that the main implication for SBKK is that you have overhang risk of up to 16% of the company, which is around half the free float. So reasonably, reasonably material, but to a degree, we think that's already played out in price news over the last few weeks. Um, nevertheless, you know, it is material, and therefore it's likely to remain an issue for the stock uh, going forward. With that, I'll hand over to Jin to talk through implications for Alibaba. Hi, good morning, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks, Chris. Um, so, as SoftBank mentioned, you know, Ali, uh, they plan to sell up to 12 to $15 billion worth of Alibaba. You know, currently the company owns about 25% of the stakes in Alibaba. So, if, even if they sell 12 to $15 billion, that, that's roughly about only 3%. So, that would take their holdings of Alibaba from 25% to about 22%, which we don't think that is overly material. Furthermore, it feels like uh, for uh, Outbank, uh, for SoftBank, the sale of Alibaba is probably going to be the easiest or the least uh, resistant in terms of the complications of any kind of assets that they may be selling. With that being said, if we look at the precedents uh, historically when Ali, when SoftBank did sell uh, shares with Baba in the past, and like in 2016, when they sold about roughly about $8 billion, 
Roughly $5 billion of that went through a private placement. Um, $2 billion were sold to BABA, and about 900 were sold to Alibaba Partnership as well as Sovereign Wealth Funds. So like Pierre mentioned before, we think that the implications to direct hit on the market will be probably very minimal, if at all. Now, furthermore, you know, the sale of the, the roughly 3% is going to be at a closing cost of about 176 uh, as of March 23rd, which is about a ninth, or which is about an 8% discount to yesterday's close. So we don't think that there, there's, we think that there's going to be a strong demand, uh, given the fact that the underlying, that, you know, there's going to be enough takers. Uh, for shares of Baba at that at a at a discount of eight percent to yesterday's uh, close. Furthermore, we think that a big chunk, or potentially a big chunk of the uh, the twelve to fifteen billion that uh, South Bank will be selling, will be taken up by Baba itself. Remember, Alibaba last year or earlier this year, I'm sorry, last year, uh, raised close to $15 billion in, in, in U.S. dollars with the Hong Kong listing. And so the company's flush with cash, as well as the fact that they're massively cash flow positive. Um, and so we think that Alibaba has even more ammo to uh, to pick up some of the uh, slack by SoftBank. With that, we think that the, the implications overall to Alibaba's shares are going to be uh, minimal at this point. Uh, and uh, we think that it's going to be pretty well taken by the market in terms of the market acceptance, or there's going to be a strong demand to take Alibaba shares at a 7 to 8% discount. So we don't think that overall, uh, we think that there's very minimal impact to Alibaba shares in the near term as well as the long term. With that, let me turn the call over back to Pierre. Actually, this is Jonathan. I'm just going to jump in quickly and talk about the implications for T-Mobile. So a transfer of shares between SoftBank and DT wouldn't have any impact on our T-Mobile thesis an open market sale or the threat of an open market sale or even a derivative transaction would create a bit of an overhang, um, but I think this would be temporary. We, we think SoftBank would be making a mistake to sell now. We think T-Mobile is going to triple in value over the course of the next five years, becoming one of the most valuable network infrastructure assets on the planet. Uh, on the planet. Though we understand that T-Mobile may not be core to SoftBank's strategy going forward, and they obviously uh, may even see even greater value in the degree to which their own stock is undervalued. So we, we don't doubt that they may pursue the, the structure that Pierre has outlined. And with that, I'll turn it back to Pierre. Thank you, Jonathan. And so implications for SoftBank um, as a stock are pretty straightforward. All the, all other things being equal, we see the buyback actually nearly doubling the SoftBank Group stock. Assuming a, an average purchase price uh, halfway between where the stock is today and where we expect it to be in 12 months from now, the buyback would take out 22% of the group share counts. And after the 41 billion asset disposal, it will increase the net asset value per share by 12%. In addition, we expect the buyback associated with initiatives on governance, financial guidelines, and disclosure to reduce the holding discount back to below 40%, which is a level where concerns about risky assets and tax liabilities would still be largely reflected. So the combination of these two levels, on one hand, increasing the net asset value per share, and on the other hand, reducing the holding discount, would nearly double the stock price from 3,800 yens today to over 7,000 7, yens uh, in one year from now. 
So with that, uh, I'll hand over to Ethan, and we are all standing by, ready to take your questions. Thank you. If you'd like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. A voice prompt on the phone line will indicate when your line is open. Please state your name before posing your question. Again, you may press star 1 to ask a question. We'll pause for just a moment to allow everyone an opportunity to signal for questions. While we wait, I, I do actually already have a number of questions I've gotten from the field for a number of you on the call. So, Chair, maybe I can start with you. I guess the governance issue has come up quite a lot um, in client uh, conversations regarding SoftBank. And I think the pushback we get is that SoftBank will remain you know, sort of a, a one-man show. Do you, I guess, how, how, what is your view in general on uh, changes and the ability to change governance at uh, either the Vision Fund or at the group level? Thanks. Thanks, Isan, for, uh, for the question. That, that, that's a very good one. And let me part uh, my answer into, um, into. First, let me give you a perspective on how I see uh, Massa, his, uh, his personality and management style, through the regular uh, direct interactions we, we have with him. Um, so the, the one thing I would say is that SoftBank is definitely uh, not a one-man show. Uh, Massa is actually uh, is a very strong, very high personality, colorful leader, uh, but he's also a fairly hands-off uh, leader. He doesn't, uh, you know, micromanage decisions uh, within the company. That's actually um, a perspective that is very often in the mind of uh, people around the group or investors, uh, but my personal experience is that it is not true. So the SoftBank Group is really uh, like a very, a very hectic place with a lot of people uh, getting involved, uh, making decisions, having independence. So I don't think the place is actually a one-man show, and I don't think the personality of Massa is one of uh, uh, micromanagement and direct control on, uh, on, uh, on everything. The second thing I would say about what I've learned over the years from the SoftBank Group is that it remains in reality a mess. So I do agree there is a governance issue. And the governance issue is much more about structuring the way this group of people is working and implementing better control on individual influences, but not better control on the influence of Massa. It's better control on the influence, actually, of all the people who are working around Massa. That is very key, very important. So there are relatively simple ways to do that. One is to increase the board independence and power, and that's a step SoftBank has taken already. They are searching three independent directors, and they will propose them at the next uh, General Assembly. So that's a great move in that direction. Then there is a second thing the group can do is actually to clean up and strengthen uh, I would say the management structure of the group and of the vision fund. Uh, so you've all probably followed in the press uh, all these reports about like excess, uh, excessive behavior that we've seen uh, around that situation. I personally think it's time now for things to, uh, to get clarified and straightened up. There has been some progress already on that front. So for instance, the vision fund is now abiding to governance guidelines when it comes to overseeing its uh, investments so that situations like what happened internally at WeWork do not repeat. So that's a very good step one. I think there is still a step two that we, we need to see coming through about the management of the vision fund itself, how the investment team is structured and managed and, uh, uh, and controlled, whether it is more visibility and more transparency or improved uh, processes, I don't know, but something probably has to come out from that. 
And then lastly, uh, a clarification of the management structure of the, of the holding uh, would also be, uh, be very welcome. And then I think the last thing that we need to, to, to really improve this perception, that means the reality of how the group is managed and the perception from investors, is also to introduce financial guidelines. What happened today, uh, the buyback is something that comes out of uh, the blue and uh, was difficult to anticipate. I think uh, SoftBank now has a level of maturity where it can start publishing, communicating, and sharing financial guidelines about when to do buybacks, how much leverage to get uh, into the group, how to control the balance between private and public investments, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the combination of all these, all these things have to go along with a buyback in the next 12 months for perception to change. That's great. Thanks, Pierre. And uh, maybe I'm, I'm just going to pivot here to Jonathan, uh, only because I see headlines on the tape that the T-Mobile deal is, has now closed. You guys have probably published more than anyone uh, on T-Mobile recently, and this was something you guys had highlighted yesterday. I guess the, the, the first question would just be, does an early close have any impact on the thesis? Thanks. It doesn't really impact the thesis, Ethan, or the value we ascribe to the new T-Mobile, but it's it's you know the last shred of uncertainty surrounding this deal is now out of the way. Um, I think we'll get news today um, that the last shred of uncertainty surrounding the financing of the deal is also under out of the way. This gives the companies the ability to get cranking on the integration today, um, and uh, you know that's that's critical to moving through the process of capturing the synergies. Um, I think the, the big issue is integrating the sales channels so that they're in a position to put all of the new subscribers from a combined sales channel onto the new T-Mobile network by the time they launch a new pricing and, and packaging in the middle of the third quarter. And so having an extra month to get all of that done, I think, is, is great, particularly in, 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 in the context of all of the issues surrounding uh, COVID-driven isolation. And it also puts the companies in a better position to talk to the integration process when they report 1Q results in early May. And from, from both of those perspectives, it's, it's going to be helpful to, uh, helpful to investors. That's great. Thank you. And uh, James, just for you, um, there's been a lot of discussion in the context of market liquidity and potential you know, credit concerns more broadly uh, around drawdowns for a number of different types of companies and just a you know, general concern around dividend risk. I guess if DT were to buy uh, more T-Mobile from SoftBank, which is a scenario that we obviously highlighted here on the call you know, is that, in your view, a risk for uh, DT dividend? Thank you. Yeah, so I uh, – no, good question. I mean, I, I, bottom line, no, I don't think it should be a risk to the dividend for the DT. Certainly, as a DT dividend, certainly not if they buy just a 7% stake at this stage. So what makes me say that? I suppose, I mean, DT recently rebased their dividend – and in doing so, they're paying out a parent company dividend at the moment of around 2.9 billion euros. Uh, now, they set that uh, fully in the knowledge 
that their free cash flow in the non-US business is only two and a half billion. So it's it's very fractionally undercovered, but non-US EBITDA is growing and clearly over the long run, there's a huge source of cash flow uh, they can tap into from the US when the integration costs are over. Uh, so I think they're kind of very relaxed starting position um, knowing that there's a, a few hundred million euros offside can easily be financed. If they were to uh, take on the extra cost of buying out the T-Mobile state, the 7%, that would cost them $7 billion roughly today's market price. The interest on that would only be a couple of hundred million euros. So bottom line I think the you know the ability to soak up that extra interest payment on the debt temporarily is is clearly manageable and obviously a huge benefit that then they get access to another seven percent of the T Mobile cash flows and return of capital in the medium term. So no, I think you know they've rebased that dividend. I think that's looking pretty secure at the moment, even buying an extra seven percent. That's very helpful. Thanks, James. And Chris, maybe if I can just pivot to you. I know you're in sort of day three of your virtual uh, Asian tour, and you've been doing hosting a number of conference calls with all the Japanese telcos. I guess just what are your thoughts in that context about the SoftBank KK uh, equity story here, and sort of what have you know? How do you correlate that with sort of the key takeaways from uh, the calls that you've been hosting? I mean, I think the you know the key takeaway from the call is that Recton is not going to impact the market very much this year. Uh, so SoftBank themselves actually specifically said they think that they will see zero customer churners. Um, so that's a fairly strong statement. Um, they're not going to adjust their price as well. And that means that the current consensus expectations, uh, which are that revenue gets impacted by about 3%, uh, is almost certainly too strong. So even with the COVID-19 impact, uh, I think you're likely to see earnings upgrades of the uh, of the stock over the next 12 months or so. And obviously, we're in an environment where earnings upgrades are going to be uh, fairly few and far between. Uh, and I think that that will also flow through to dividend upside because of the uh, necessity for you know the dividend at the SBG level. Offsetting that, there's the overhang risk that we've talked about, but I think that that's fairly well priced in at this point. So uh, I, I would be relatively positive on the company. Over 6% dividend yield, positive earnings momentum, I think, um, you know, and uh, in a relatively stable market, uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty good place to be invested at, at this stage. That's great. Thank you. And then maybe, Jen, if I can just... Uh Wrap it up here uh, with you in terms of key questions we've been getting. I, I guess the big one for Alibaba is: Do you have a view on the odds of them buying back the entire 12 to 15 billion stake uh, that SoftBank would be looking to sell? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's a realistic opportunity. You know, given the given the current macro backdrop, and given the fact that you know China is on the other side of the curve with the full COVID-19, everyone's kind of getting back to work and so forth. Um, you know, certainly, you know, Bob has been very defensive and very strong over the first three months of the year. 
in terms of the share price, uh, given the fact that everyone's been cocooned at their homes and buying everything online. And despite the fact that now everyone's able to go outside and, you know, go to the shopping malls and stuff like that, we think that probably in this environment will still thrive, given the fact that the online to offline transition has been ex- uh, uh, accelerated. Furthermore, a lot of these blue-collar workers start to go back to work, and they're gives, gives them more spending power, obviously, to to shop both on and offline. So with that being said, you know, given the fact that, you know, SoftBank is selling at a, at a price that it's, you know, 7 to 8% discount to yesterday's close, and at the same time, you know, the, these guys are flush with $15 billion of extra cash uh, late last year with the sale of the Hong Kong IPO, we think that both fundamentally, business fundamentals, as well as the cash balance that Alibaba has, that they are more than equipped to take out the entire stake and then some. So I wouldn't be surprised if they take out uh, a vast majority of the chunk or even the whole thing. So I think we think that that is a very much a realistic opportunity. That's great. Thanks. And then, uh, Stephanie, I'm sorry, I, I just realized we didn't check uh, the phone lines for any potential questions. Do you mind? There are currently no questioners at this time, but if you'd like to ask a question, you may press star one now. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Well, the purpose was to make this call uh, relatively short, um, and I know we're into the open year. Uh, I'm maybe going to come back to Jonathan if you're still on the line. I know some of our speakers uh, had to go, but I did have one follow-up from the field uh, for you on T-Mobile if you're still on. Yep, sure. Go for it. Was uh, just a question around, I, I know that some of our peers have and there's been some debate in the market about relative positioning between the wireless players if we do enter recession. And I just wanted to get your views. The question was, how do we think T-Mobile stacks up relative to the rest of the coverage and specifically Verizon uh, in terms of uh, relative potential performance and, you know, as it relates to subscribers, not just obviously financials in a downturn? Thanks. I think T-Mobile is at the top of our shopping list right now. Um, it's the company that is the most undervalued on the back of the the sell-off going into the COVID-19 crisis and the recession that's going to follow. So if you look at the change in enterprise values, um, which ignores the impact of leverage on equity value, um, the, the change in enterprise value from before the COVID-19 crisis to, the, to today should reflect the impact of the crisis and the ensuing recession on the, the on on the underlying businesses of these companies, um, and if you look at the the move in Verizon's enterprise value versus T-Mobile's enterprise value, is a huge gap, a 700 basis point gap um, in the in the impact to enterprise values, which doesn't make much sense to me. If you consider these companies are both 100% wireless companies, more or less, they've both got wireline businesses that are. Um, insignificant in the context of the overall business. So really, 100% exposed to wireless, which is the most defensive of all of the products across the communication services landscape. There's been some concern that T-Mobile has a lower lower quality customer base and may be more exposed in the context of a recession, particularly as they fold in the Sprint base I actually think that's a misperception. If you look at the data from the last recession, there was actually a, a very significant shift in share towards discount carriers. Um, in those days, it was Leap Metro PCS Boost and Straight Talk who were all 
selling $40, $45 unlimited plans. They took a tremendous, their best years ever were in 2008, 2009. And I think the same thing will happen this time around. And I think the key beneficiary of that shift this time around is going to be the new T-Mobile, given that they're priced 20% below AT&T and Verizon. Um, and the, looking back at the data from the, from the last recession, we actually didn't see a material increase in bad debt um, at the discount carriers. We didn't see a material increase in churn either at the discount carriers. So there, there really isn't a lot of evidence that a lower quality customer base uh, translates into into issues at at the discount carriers, and that it would be an impact for T-Mobile this time around. And I think the reason for that that people are losing sight of is that wireless is effectively a utility. It's an absolutely necessary service for all households. And so, it's even in moments of economic stress, it's not where households go to find savings. To the extent that they do, T-Mobile is going to be a beneficiary of that. It, it's unlikely that that households are going to give up um, wireless service with or stop paying their wireless bills with T-Mobile as as the 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 economy uh, gets pressured. Guys, that's great. And I did have one. I think we may have lost Pierre. I had one follow up. I don't know if you were. Um, I'm back there. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm asking this question right. I think it's kind of a structuring question, but there's been a lot of, you know, uh, debates just on, you know, if we get to a scenario of, you know, SoftBank selling to uh, DT. And the question is sort of what if DT, for political reasons or, or, or whatever, doesn't agree to ease limits on SoftBank's ability to raise more than 50% of their stake in Sprint and asset-backed loan? How do we think about that potential outcome or that potential scenario? Thanks. Yes, thanks, Istan. It's a very good question because one of our key beliefs in uh, in this work is that DT is going to be interested uh, in uh, in playing that game of getting the opportunity to increase their, their stake in T-Mobile. If that doesn't happen, the maximum uh, Sovereign can get out of its uh, um, uh, Sprint stake today is about $13 billion. So they would have to find $7 billion elsewhere to get to their $41 billion. Two, two, two options for that, selling more uh, of Alibaba. Uh, that's probably not uh, going to be the preferred option for, uh, uh, for SoftBank because SoftBank has a very high conviction on the share appreciation potential of, uh, of Alibaba. A second option that could be uh, considered is actually getting uh, an investor into ARM. So ARM is... Uh, fully owned by a combination of SoftBank and the Vision Fund today. The, the plan, as last stated, was to IPO, uh, re-IPO the business on the 2025 horizon. We see a scenario where an IPO could happen sooner, benefiting from the fact that ARM is going to migrate to its next architecture generation, V9, over the next few years which is a very strong driver of growth for them. So that would be a very good equity story for an IPO in a couple of years from now. And, of course, getting ahead of that IPO, a strategic investor, I don't know, uh, for instance, like uh, a Samsung or an Apple or a combination of these guys, getting a, a strategic stake into ARM the same way 
uh, Intel, TSMC, and Samsung got a strategic stake into ASML a few years ago would be one option. Or another option would be to have just a financial investor participating in a pre-IPO financing. So, so that's one of the things that could uh, be considered. Where did he not interested in entering the, the kind of structuring we've laid out today? That's great. Thank you. I know the call's probably gone on a little bit longer than we intended, so that's probably a great place to leave it. I want to thank everyone for dialing in and sending in your questions today. If we didn't get to them, we'll be sure to follow up. And um, I want to thank all the New Street speakers for their contributions as well. And Pierre, maybe I'll hand it over to you. Do you want to close the call out? Isan, thanks for uh, organizing the call and thanks everybody for joining. Uh, and for anyone who uh, is uh, interested in follow-ups, we are available and standing by. And lastly, I hope everyone stays safe.